Q&A with Dr. Anthony Esselin on the first book of Milton's Paradise Lost. Yes, please. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Anthony Esselin needs no introduction. He's a senior fellow. I guess I'll give him one anyway. He's a senior fellow at the Albertus Magnus Institute and professor at Magdalena College of the Liberal Arts. He's a famed translator, author, translated Dante's Divine Comedy, just a great professor and a great asset to what we're doing at the Magnus Fellowship. You can become a fellow today, so you can take these classes live. They're live, interactive, completely free. Tell your friends we exist. We limit live class attendance to 25 fellows studying in these eight-week classes. It's a ton of fun. You'll meet people. You'll cross-pollinate. And then we archive the recordings for you to access at any time. Those are available to all fellows giving us 25 bucks a month or more. It's a great value, in my humble opinion. So do it. Yeah, join us, Magnus Fellowship, magnusinstitute.org. Here's Anthony Esselin. I, I really do want to make sure we're all clear about this. Milton's a profoundly Christian poet. He's not a, he's not a promoter of the devils here. Um, this poem is about Christ. Now, we don't know that yet because we haven't seen him yet. Okay, Milton hasn't shown us yet, but he's setting things up in very sly ways. Um, ultimately, the poem is comic in this sense that salvation wins. The devils are doomed to failure. Okay. Um, we can ask later on when we get to the very end of the poem uh, with exactly what mood we are left at, at that end. It's maybe the greatest single ending of a poem in any language, rivaled perhaps by the end of Spencer's Fairy Queen, but it, it is an amazing ending to a poem. Uh, when I mentioned Milton and his troubled first marriage, I should also say that Milton is one of the greatest defenders of the goodness of the sexes, their beauty, their complementarity, and the holiness of marriage. Okay, um, He'd have found our society to be quite appalling, uh, unendurably uh, bleak and sad. Uh, and you know he for, for a guy who writes a tract on that it, on the fact that it may be licit to allow for divorces in certain cases he gives in paradise lost he gives terrific defenses of what marriage is and the one thing that satan envies most about the human beings in paradise adam will say what he hates most what he envies most is their marriage. Um, we will see a lot of that, too. Now it's time for me to field questions. Well, this is just an observation. Okay. But I, I noticed in the uh, sixth line, he's singing, sing heavenly muse. So, I mean, he's right. tapping right into the Greeks. Uh, Odyssey, the, uh, even the Virgil's and it, I believe they both start that way. So he's, I mean, is he showing off here? 
Like he no. knows look what I know, or is he just trying to align himself with the great epics and, and throw himself in there with the, the rest? No, yeah. Uh, see, everybody who's writing an epic in the Middle Ages and Renaissance has to do the same thing. Okay. Oh. Um, there has to, it's an epic, there has to be an invocation in the muse. The identity of that muse, that's an issue. Okay. And for Christian writers, um, the muse is either an allegory of something, um, or it's um, actually the Holy Spirit. Okay, the, the, so the muse is either the Holy Spirit or some sort of allegorical being that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So Milton goes very quickly to say uh, to invoke the Spirit directly, and chiefly thou, O Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure. You prefer the upright and pure heart before all temples. And we think of St. Paul saying your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, right? Um, and he asks of the Spirit, instruct me. And it's a fascinating verb, okay? I never noticed that verb instruct until I memorized the, you know, the opening and had to speak it. And I said, holy cow, instruct. Uh, any, anybody out there, any guesses as what the word literally means to instruct? To teach. That's the figurative meaning. But etymologically and literally, it means to do something very physical. To instruct. Like instructions. Uh, maybe to fortify like a building. To build. Okay. Yeah. Milton is playing on that the etymology of the word. He's asking the Holy Spirit to build him up to be a temple. All right. But he's using the vocabulary with the muse of the ancients where they meant it really was some type of greek goddess or whatever you know whatever it was now he's changed it to his christian spirit behind the muse but yeah he he had predecessors who did that too so he's not the first person to do that um and so everybody takes for granted his readers would take for granted oh yes we see what you're doing here all right because we've seen this before and he's not showing off to say look how look how well-rounded i am i know my greek no no he's not showing off everybody does that Although he is showing off in this way, he says, he says, nobody has ever attempted to do this before. And I intend to soar above the Aeonian Mount. The Aeonian Mount there refers to Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey. He's saying, I intend to soar higher than Homer. I intend to to write of things to to well, my flight is not going to be a middle flight it's going to pursue things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme uh sure enough it's the epic to end all epics you can't have a greater theme to write about right the material was great yeah the material was great <laughs> the material is great um, so, uh, questions about uh, light or uh, comments about light and darkness or imprisonment and liberty or 
Uh, Professor Esslin, can I yes. ask a question, uh, another biographical yeah. question, not, not sure. about the motifs? Um, I was I read about the situation with his first wife and yeah. um, the uh, the I think the father owed owed money to Milton. And so there's like this um, this usury issue going on. I don't know if you want to comment on that at all. Yeah, uh, Milton. Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I don't know if it was. Well, uh, I won't comment too much about that. I'll just say that that the, the her family was not particularly honest and uh uh they were kind of difficult finally after a year and a half it was the family uh that the family thought you know we're going to need this guy after all and he took her back and you know they they seemed to have had a successful marriage after that well she died in giving birth to the child number 3 Professor, I had a question about the, yes. about the will. Um, okay, go ahead. If I, if I remember my angel, angelology or angelology correctly, the, the will of, of, of the cherubim and seraphim is, is perfect and it cannot be broken. So is that the, is the, is the, when they comment about the will of Satan being unchanging, is that, is that the nature of the angel? Or no. is it, there are some other meaning? No, it's not. Um, Milton sharply disagreed with uh, the schoolmen on the being of the angels and the character of their wills and their decisions, right? Um, so um, we're going to find that the angels have, um, have a, a, a sort of corporeal being, okay? Now, it's not a heavy and lumpish corporeal being such as we have. Um, they can assume many shapes, right? Um, but, uh, but they are bodies. Um, they are limited in space and they experience things. Milton's angels experience things in time as other creatures do. Um, and they make decisions. They can make mistakes because their knowledge is not complete. They don't sin. Uh, that is, the good angels in this poem do not sin, but they could. And, and Milton is explicit about that also. They stand so long as their wills stand, loyal to God, faithful to God. Um, so we're, we're not, uh, this, these are not the angels that Dante describes in the Divine Comedy or are the angels of Thomas Aquinas. These are... Milton imagines them as creaturely beings uh, that have bodies and that dwell in time and that can, in fact, fall still. Okay? So they are not confirmed for eternity. Um, they, it, it's explicitly said, Raphael says to Adam when he comes down to visit him, and give him recommendations. You know, you're going to be tempted here. You've got an enemy. He's on the loose. Watch out. We only stand so long as our wills remain faithful. Thank you. And it's in your power to remain faithful. You actually have to kind of go way out of your way to be unfaithful. Uh, and Milton, Milton knew that he was unorthodox there. Um, 
but I, I, when we get to that point, I think that, that there are things to be said. I don't want to say it now, but there are things to be said about what that implies for his view of the goodness of physical creation and the goodness of, of food and uh, sex, of love between man and woman, of the physical universe, right? Uh, Milton insists upon that goodness, okay? And this is part of his decision uh, or his belief that the angels also possess. They're, they're not like our bodies, but they are bodies. Very helpful, thank you. Um, more questions or comments about darkness visible or confinement? The will is a good question, right? Now, Satan says, Satan says, my will is unchanging. Okay. I will never change. Now, he doesn't know that. See, that sounds very proud, very bold, daring. Uh, actually, it's a sign of his damnation. Um, he no longer possesses the capacity to change. Okay. I think it seems that uh, Satan's will is actually not his own. It's defined in opposition to God, such that God is essentially making the decision of how Satan will behave because he put Satan here and... Um, Satan can only say, I want what God does not want at this point. Yeah, uh, Satan, right. I mean, God is not determining Satan in this sense, right? So we, we need to be very careful here. God does not decree that Satan shall do the various evil things that he does, okay? Uh, God foresees that it will happen, and God has removed from Satan all grace and therefore, all possibility of repentance or reform. So whatever Satan does is going to be evil. But what exactly he does, Milton seems to leave it in his own creaturely determination, although God, of course, foresees all and provides for all. Uh, but whether the, the, the evil will take this shape or that shape, it, it, it's, that it will be evil, there is no doubt. But watch out, because even Satan, and it increases his agony, still has some uh, some apperception of the good. It's a good that you know is there. You can even observe it, but you can't enjoy it. Imagine what it's like to be a person who is so cynical that the sight of a young married couple with their children laughing and playing makes you unhappy. That's satanic. I'd say that only, only in destroying I find ease to my relentless thoughts. <laughs> um, okay, light and darkness, how about? Yeah, I, I noticed I had um, something underlined. I guess it's line 63. Um, okay. There was um, as one great furnace flame, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe. So that darkness visible is just what brilliant. I'm... It's absolutely brilliant. Imagine fire that gives off darkness, 
by which you see regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell, and so on. Okay. Um, of course, it 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 makes no it makes no logical sense, but it's perfect, absolutely perfect, poetically. Okay. Um, it's an inversion of everything, as one of one of you just commented. Um, it's as if uh, uh, Satan and the devils no longer see by means of light, but uh, miss see by means of darkness, conceived not merely as the absence of light. Um, it's it's uh, if you pressed Milton on it, he would say, you know, okay, okay, all right, you got to give me some leeway. I am writing a poem here. Um, but uh, you, you say, hey, Milton, you are making you are making darkness into a positive, existent thing, rather than mere the, the, the mere absence of light. And uh, then you could get into an hour long conversation with him about what the poetry of it is. But it's it's a phenomenal line, one of the greatest lines ever written in English. There's a there's another line in here that I thought was kind of interesting because it triggered in me. It says, "The mind is its own place." And in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. So it seems like the, Satan is imposing his will on reality by just right. flipping it. Kind yeah, of like, that's right. Kind of like, was there any influence from Descartes? Or was Descartes even around yet? Uh, Descartes is certainly around. Descartes, uh can't remember Descartes' death date. Descartes dead by the time uh, this is written. Uh, quite, uh, several decades uh at least um and milton is aware of of descartes um because the devil is rejecting the objective you know truth of heaven and hell and, and just saying i'm going to flip it on you yeah and, I, descartes would have found that. yeah descartes descartes was sometimes uh, descartes a kind of mystery to me he he uh he he was a hypochondriac who worried sometimes that he was uh, not any longer an Orthodox Catholic, and he needed to have his friend, um, the mathematician uh, Marim Marsen, to um, say, no, 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 Rene, you're still within the fold. You're still within the fold. Uh, but there is a kind of weird dualism here, a separation of mind from matter that Milton will not accept. Milton does not accept at all. And, of course, it is simply not the case that the mind creates reality um rather uh milton is milton here is rather like saint thomas okay you are sane when you um when your thoughts are in accord with what is okay um so for instance you see something that's good and beautiful and you respond in the appropriate way that is a sane thing okay um reason is the coordinate or rational it, think of think of measures it's the right measured response to the reality of a thing in front of you okay um it's in a concord with with it and uh, uh satan here is flatly denying it of course he's denying it for rhetorical and political reasons um he's got to put a good face on things but it's not true okay but it's um, a stubborn pride, not accepting reality. Uh, yeah, it's a stubborn pride. Um, there's a there's a real complexity to Satan's character. Okay, he's one of the 
one of the reasons why the romantics got Satan wrong is that he's a really phenomenally subtle, well-drawn character. And um, what is what you look at as pride in one way is a kind of desperate bravado in another way, or cold political calculation. It could be all these things at once. We're going to see Satan apparently come within a millimeter of repentance. But you know, it's like um, uh, <laughs> close enough in horseshoes, hand grenades, but uh, it, you know, come within a millimeter of repentance. You might as well uh, say that you were a million miles away because you don't repent. Um, There's an interesting complexity to the character, and it's going to have all kinds of implications for how we view the human beings. Because Satan, be, before the Adam and Eve fall in Paradise Lost, the characters in this poem that we are most like, or that are most like us, are the devils. Okay? God and the angels, the Father and the Son and the angels, they're not like us. And Adam and Eve before the fall are not like us. The devils are most like us. It almost seems that um, the devil's attracted to the light at a certain point when he, um, around line 85, when he says, um, from him who in the happy realms of light, clothed with transcendent brightness, did outshine. He's, he seems like he's admiring the light. Again, we got some things mingled together, right? So Satan is certainly capable of recognizing beauty. What he's no longer capable of is loving it, okay? Enjoying it. He's capable of, of observing it, seeing it. Now here he says, oh my gosh. Uh, and Stan uh, is saying to everybody before the fall, Eve is problematic. I'm going to argue against that, but we'll get there, okay? We will get there. Um, that's not yet. But uh, uh, Satan is uh, Satan has to persuade Beelzebub to go along with him, and some praise, some smoothing of Beelzebub is necessary. He's also in shock because Beelzebub doesn't look like himself anymore, and if he could hardly recognize him my gosh what if i can hardly recognize him what must i like uh and that will come back it is going to come back we're going to see a couple of the innocent angels young ones not recognize satan in book four and that's going to bother him no end how the heck could you not recognize me and they say you don't look the same all right. And a really great moment, too. Um, anybody have anything to say about confinement? Think about the building that they build at the end of book one. How do you get all those devils inside there? What has to happen to the um, vast majority of the devils? 
to fit them inside the building? They have to shrink. How small? Really small. What are they compared to? This is wonderful, too. Pygmies. Pygmies and bees. Yeah. Um, pygmies is comic. Bees is interesting because bees were always used as allegories of social life. Okay. And Milton has fun with that tradition here. As bees in springtime, when the sun with Taurus rides, pour forth their populous youth about the hive in clusters. They, among fresh dews and flowers, fly to and fro, or on the smoothed plank, the suburb of their straw-built citadel, new rubbed with balm, expatiate and confer their state affairs. Bees! in a senate of bees, talking about the common good. And th that's an ironic glance at human politics, okay? Um, the, the, the devils now are so terrible, they're so compared to bees in springtime. <laughs> um, right, I mean, this is fascinating though, because Satan, Beelzebub, Moloch, Belial, um, Mammon uh, and the rest who are unnamed, but those they're going to speak in book two because they're conferring. Where are they in the building? Very end of the book, okay? <clears throat> they're, they're in the center of it. They're the very, very center of it? Not the center, okay? They're far within. So this is lit literally back room politics. Hmm. They're inside. Now, if we think that this is a parody of the Vatican, um, where they are is where perhaps the highest of the cardinals would be meeting in secret conclave. And a conclave is literally a chamber where you turn the key so that nobody else gets in. Okay. From Latin clava, clavus, meaning key. Okay. But far within and in their own dimensions, like themselves, the great seraphic lords and cherubim in close recess and secret conclave sat a thousand demigods on golden seats, frequent and full. After the short silence then in summons read, the Council of Trent began. Um, that's, it's Milton. He is glancing at the Council of Trent. Okay. But, uh, I, you know, does that matter to me? That doesn't matter to me. Okay. Um, that was what he was. Uh, he was wrong. But, hey, you know. Dr. Eslin. him for it. Yeah. I have, like, I found this really old uh, study. It's like a school book on Paradise Lost. And it was interesting because they said there is a guy, I don't know. He had, In the introduction, they have a little excerpt that says, um, talks about the resemblance of pandemonium to the pantheon. 
So I had been reading oh, that. That's yeah. I thought that was very interesting. And then, but you bring up the Vatican. I thought that was St. Peter's. No, I think it's more like St. Peter's because um, we really are in, in the description of the architecture. Okay. It's Baroque. All right. Mm -hmm. It's not that severe, clean, classical architecture of the Pantheon. Um, we've got pilasters. They're not in the Pantheon, right? False pillars. We've got uh, Corinthian capitals. Um, we've got a gold coffered roof ceiling. Um, you know, it's uh, anybody reading it would say that's a big Baroque cathedral. Okay. Um, Pantheon is interesting because you had the gods, okay, um, a kind of zodiac of gods that would be lighted up depending on what time of the year it was, uh, the angle of the sun coming through the skylight. But otherwise, I don't think that the Pantheon physically resembles the description here. I think it's uh, I think it's St. Peter's. <laughs> For what yeah, it's worth. St. Peter, Peter's had just been finished or was like at the very ending stage of its construction. It was being re, re yeah, it uh, uh, took quite a long time to rebuild. It was caving in. Uh, there had been, you know, the, the, the Basilica had been there for centuries, um, but in the 1400s, it was collapsing and gosh, it needed to be rebuilt. So uh, that Pope Sixtus went, uh, I think it was the first to embark upon rebuilding projects that, and that went on and on and on for the better part of a century. Uh, Michelangelo worked on it. Everybody was anybody worked on it. Raphael, you know, painting inside the Vatican Library. Um, it was ongoing process, and uh, yeah, 1506 to 1626. Finally, um, yeah. The funny thing is that that the fact that the walls were caving in is a partial cause of the Protestant Reformation because they needed money. Um, the Pope didn't have a lot of money. The Pope didn't have anything. Um, the, 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 you know, the 15th century popes were, they're not, they're not rich like the richest of the kings in Europe, say the king of Spain. Um, and, uh, you know, they needed funds. So they went um, uh, not selling indulgences, but it looked like that uh, in German lands. The German people took it ill as a people because it seemed to be profiting Italians. And there was this ethnic uh, part of the controversy. And, uh, you know, if St. Peter's walls hadn't been buckling in, then they wouldn't have done that. And perhaps... Um, you know, who knows what would have happened? Um, anyhow, uh, the question about, about the theme of willful willfulness, uh, yeah. Dr. Esselin. Um, I mean, especially how exciting is it? It, it is to dr dramatically to start it with 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 Satan having just been thrust out and and kind of and like it, that's not good enough, and he's going to bounce right back. I mean, how that works, kind of in. And the epic, and and one other kind of thing, a tangent just came to mind. Uh, you you can shoot it down. I mean, Chesterton puts um, puts Alfred face down on the in the riverbed, and he's a conquered king. Um, is there is there is there 
is just is Chatterton thinking back to 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 a, a a good hero as opposed to a tragic hero, um, in starting his 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 ballad of the white horse, um, with with a, a conquered king on the bottom of a of a uh, on, and face down in a riverbed. Um, but 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 this idea, and, and then moreover, for him willfully, I mean, for for Alfred to 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 charge forth, you know. With the inspiration of the Virgin, but but sort of maybe a, a sort of a twisted contrast. But uh, I have to look at the Ballad of the White Horse again, so I'm gonna I'm gonna defer that question. The thing about being face down though shows up in book two. Um, that one of the things that Satan wants to persuade all the devils of, and it's of course it's a lie, is that God the Father was a tyrant. Now, when the devils are not around, when Satan is alone, um, we overhear him thinking to himself or talking to himself, and then he can admit things that he can't admit in front of them. And one of the things he admits is that the service of God was not hard at all. Okay. He was no tyrant. He was a giver of existence, a giver of liberty. He was not a tyrant at all. Um, but uh, 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 he, when, when the, it's politically called for, he accuses the unfallen angels of being toadies and flunkies and um, being servile. But the fascinating thing is that the, um, the, the good angels never prostrate themselves before God. They, they bow. When they praise God, they bow. They, take, they wear crowns. They take their crowns off. They put them down. They praise God. And then they pick up their crowns and put them back on again. But when the decision is made in Pandemonium in book two, we will see, um, to go and tempt a couple of naked people uh, on this new world, right, Earth, the angels, when the final decision is made and when Satan says, I'm going and nobody's coming with me, um, Milton says, towards him they bow with awful reverence prone. And as a god... Um, extol him equal to the highest in heaven. Prone means flat on your face. You're right. That's right. <laughs> I'm saying <laughs> um, So much for uh, uh, so much for uh, uh, so, so much for giving your underlings respect. Um, they really are underlings there and prone prone i mean milton makes a point of it um the the devils are confined in their own will and the strange thing is that as they meet in pandemonium we got these most of the devils are reduced to the size of bees you know they're they're very tiny so that there's a lot of room they're not even crowded in there right i mean they're so tiny that there's a lot of room they're at large meaning they got a lot of space between them because they're so tiny, um, while the others are in secret conclave and they're in their own dimensions. But the conclave means that Thor is locked um, to keep the others from getting in. Nice republic, interesting republic. Um, what about the physical character of hell so far as you've seen it? You get more description of it in book two. I, I just, uh, I'm not sure if this is a good or bad question, but you know, Dante refers to hell like Satan's in a frozen lake 
And and this seems to be more the, the, the polar opposite of that. Is there anything to that? Well, yeah, of course, Milton, Milton uh, is fluent in, uh, you know, most of the important European languages, probably fluent in German. I don't know. I'm not sure about German. Certainly fluent in Italian and French, uh, of course, fluent in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Um, he read all the Italian poetry. Okay, So he read he read Dante. He read Dante in the original Italian. Um, now, he he could perceive why Dante places Satan at the center of hell, the bottom of hell, encased in ice. And Satan doesn't even speak. Satan just flaps his wings and chews. Brutus and Cassius on the side, his side, side heads, and um, Judas Iscariot in the center. Uh, but what drama can you make of that, right? If, if you're going to write a dramatic epic about the temptation, the fall of man, you've got to have Satan on the loose. He's got to be speaking, okay? So you can't have him stuck in ice. Um, one of his predecessors, Tasso, an Italian poet, in Jer Jerusalem delivered, Jerusalem liberata. And I recommend a good translation, by the way, yours truly. Um, has uh, Satan down there, and he can't, he, Satan doesn't ever get free of there, but he sends his minions for it. Okay. And Milton says, you know, but this is not good enough. I, I need to have Satan himself in Eden. So we can't have him either in ice or stuck there. But ice is still present in Paradise Lost. And he's, he's, uh, he's going to show us some ice in, um, in book two. There is a region that they haven't yet discovered that is worse than Siberia. Um, and the devils are hustled over to there every so often to um, suffer the fire of ice and to suffer all the more by the change from fire to ice and ice to fire. But if we think of what ice means, that is the, the, the kind of stagnancy or stasis of the will, the, the unchangeability of it, um, then Milton has picked up something from Satan. Or Milton has picked up something from Dante. <laughs> Milton has picked up from Dante. They all learn from everybody. Figure everybody's reading everybody. Okay. And uh, they pick up everything left and right. Yeah. And they figure that their readers, if uh, their readers are well read, if their readers know languages, they figure, hey, look what you did with Dante there. Everybody's in big conversation. Uh, what about um, uh, what about the motif of gold here? If I may just throw that at you. Why do the devils get gold to build with? And by the way, uh, Milton didn't invent this. This this idea about gold and silver is present in the ancient world too, in ancient poetry, that it would have been a better thing for mankind never to rip up the bowels of the earth to get gold and silver out of it. Why? Maybe one 
one purpose is to still draw attention to the church's op- opulence. Yeah, although I think it's bigger than that, right? And the church's opulence can be so exaggerated. Uh, you know, I mean, opulence compared to what? The court of France, the court of Spain? Um, not really. But anyway, uh, and then the court of England after England becomes a great naval power, please. Um, and I, but the point is, the point is of a general import, right? Um, gold, the desire for gold uh, has corrupted man. Okay, um, it's a bane, says Milton. Um, we shouldn't wonder. Let none admire that riches grow in hell. That soil may best deserve the precious bane. And bane means poison. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, there's the satire there is against man. Okay. Um, and Milton it, it gives us a surprise. But this time he doesn't leave it implicit. He's explicit about it. Oh, you wonder that they're using gold in pandemonium. Why should you wonder? If gold should be anywhere, it'll be in hell. I like that he used, he said Mammon was the one who built it. and He was the one who was always looking yeah. down. Yeah, and then there's some comedy there, right? So let's see, how can I describe Mammon? Well, even when he was in heaven, he was always looking at the pavement, okay? Uh, the least erected spirit that fell from heaven. For even in heaven, his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, admiring more the riches of heaven's pavement, trodden gold, than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in addition to the atypic. Um, yeah, mammon. Um, he also is going to speak in book two, right? So that we get we have five principal speakers in book two. We have Satan and Beelzebub. Beelzebub speaks as Satan's mouthpiece. Okay. Satan's flunky. And arguing about what to do will be um, Moloch. I want to fight. Belial. I'm scared of fighting. (laughs) And um, Mammon. Hey, maybe we can build a really nifty place down here. And of course, it's all vain. It's all it's all shown to be vain. It's it's empty. And they end up deciding, let's go and send one of us to tempt a couple of naked people. Um, well, they don't yet know about the naked people. but uh, Oh, yeah. They, well, they, they don't know a couple, but they, they're the puny habitants. This is Beelzebub. Maybe we'll drive them out. Okay. Now, as soon as he says it, he backs away from it. They can't even do that. Or seduce them to our party that their God may prove their foe and with repenting hand abolish his own works. <laughs> All right. Well, wonderful. Um, that would be great. Let's make two, let's make a couple of people, creatures we don't even know. Let's make them miserable. My gosh, I would almost think that the devils had gone to school at an American college and spent their time in a faculty lounge. Um, 
where but in a faculty lounge could you come up with ideas let's just spend our entire day trying to figure out a way to make people who've never hurt us miserable that is other faculty members <laughs> my gosh if there were not if, if envy ceased among faculty uh our colleges would be our colleges would be in a crisis because three quarters of the of the professoriate would retire from lack of interest. Um, any last questions here? Because we're we're at the ten thirty mark, and um, <laughs> I was just thinking back back to the, the the gold from a little bit ago. Um, okay. Now I was thinking there's there's gold in I mean there's gold in in uh, heaven. There's gold in the temple, yep. but in like in the old Testament, there's, there's precious metals and jewels in the temple, but that's by God's design. And that's us offering it, right. We're getting kind of getting rid of it and giving it to God in right, heaven. Right. It's underfoot, but in hell, it's, it's not beneath you. Like it is uh, in those other yeah, places. I, I don't think Nothing's I, really beneath. Milton is not making any general or universal point about gold. Um, he's, engaging there in a bit of satire against human beings okay um it works it's it's local it's a good shot okay uh, i and i don't think we should press it f farther than that because he will in fact describe um the gold of uh of heaven all right um i mean heaven is heaven is gorgeous heaven is beautiful it's also material in a strange way. Um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get there. Um, is, is it any context or intention in that case that's the difference if they're both built with gold? Uh, is it intent or... That, so. yeah. Well, all good things can be abused, right? Um, but Milton here does call it bane. Uh, maybe we should just give him the shot there chalk up one for Milton against mankind um, and not then ask him a question that will pop up when we get to heaven in book three. Uh, you know, I thought that gold was Bane. Um, and he'd say, well, maybe there's gold and there's gold. Um, anyhow, uh, uh, I think we should call it an, uh, yes. There's maybe Chris. one more thing that I was thinking about, like, uh, the, the presence of gold there maybe can kind of, and especially how much there is, it can, uh, you know, kind of emphasize that it doesn't help their privation. Like their, their state isn't, isn't alleviated at all by how much gold there is there. No, in fact, the, the description is rather excessive and uh, 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 something bothersome about it. Now, he's picked that idea up from predecessor in English poetry, Edmund Spencer. Um, he, Spencer has a passage in it, describing the, uh, the Bower of Bliss, and it's ironically named. But there, there's there are golden grapes in the Bower of Bliss that weigh down the branches of the grapevine. It's artificial. It's heavy. It's too much. It's not natural. Okay, um, so Milton may be uh, thinking about there because uh, the decorations of pandemonium are excessive. 
and that continues at the very beginning of book two with its description of how Satan is sitting on his seat there. Um, it's a kind of gaudy, excessive, hyper-oriental splendor, such as the Greeks associated with Persian emperors, Persian tyrants. Not tyrants, the, the different thing, but Persian emperors. Um, not us Greeks. We're simple. Persia, excess. Okay. Egypt, excessive. Um, anyway, I think we should, I, I, I don't remember if we ended and began these courses last semester with prayer, but I think we should end with a, a short prayer. Father Royals, will you lead us in prayer? You betcha. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Okay, guys, we will see you then uh, next week um, when we actually get to see uh, the Senate in session. <laughs> um, and we get to meet sin and death. Uh, all right. Okay, guys, we'll see Thank you. you, Professor. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.